Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would hold thou the cross before our closing eyes. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to see how soon the time draws near that we will close our eyes. And Father, we are praying that you would help us that on every day between this one and that one that we would have the cross before us. And not only that, but the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ before us and all of the hope that you have given us in him. Lord, we need that vision so that we will be able to please you now, to stand with courage and confidence now. And so, Father, we ask you to open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Lightheart penned a really stunning essay last week reflecting on the meaning of the pandemic. And in his title, he simply labeled it, Is This a Judgment? And among other things, he wrote this, and I'm going to read to you a little bit from his article. He says this, he says, It's difficult to read biblical descriptions of cities and nations under judgment without being struck by the resemblance to the world. Now, April 2020, our city streets are silent. There is no longer the voice of bridegroom and the voice of bride, not even the wailing of a funeral dirge. Many merchants have closed their doors, and the shops of many craftsmen have gone silent. The music of harpists and musicians and flute players has stopped. Concert halls and theaters throughout the world are empty. Cities are soundscapes, and silent cities are cities under the Lord's discipline. Churches, too, are soundscapes and places of assembly. Now they're empty and still. We should ponder the possibility that the Lord has had enough of our trampling of his courts and so has put an end to our new moons and feast days. Some will say that the virus didn't do all this. The response to the virus did. There's truth to that. But it doesn't alter the point. The pestilence and shutdown have produced a situation that looks an awful lot alike a judgment of biblical proportions, end quote. I've said this before, and I will say it again. I'm not a prophet. I cannot say with certainty what all the reasons are for why the Lord has brought this pandemic to us. Nevertheless, I think I can say with a great amount of certainty what Scripture reveals about this. God brings affliction into the lives of his people, not to destroy them, but to sanctify them. If you're not thinking in those terms, I dare say you might not be thinking about all of this in a Christian way at all. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, 
but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, end quote. You see, when our bodies are working well, when our bank accounts are full, when we're gainfully employed, and the biggest worry we have is when we'll find time to mow the lawn, it's easy for us to turn from the eternal and to the trivial. It's easy for us to forget our maker, the shortness of the time that we've been given, the necessities of heaven and hell and of judgment. We forget about the most important things and become absorbed in our comforts, sometimes even making idols out of them. How does God get the attention of sated sinners who live their lives as if God were a marginal figure in the world? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to become deaf to God in your pleasures? Have you ever noticed how prone your heart is to fixate on trivialities in seasons of ease and tranquility in your life? It's true that God is always there whispering in our consciences. And he's saying things like, don't waste your life on trivialities. Have me, have me. But how easy it is to suppress and ignore God when we feel like we don't need him. And yet he whispers to us. But if we cannot hear God's whispers in our pleasures, he knows how to raise his voice in our pain. God knows how to sober his saints through suffering. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Will we have ears to hear, not only when he whispers, but also and especially when he shouts? Don't get me wrong. I want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. I want all of us to get through this whole and healthy. But if any of us is desiring for our lives to go back to what they were before the pandemic, then I submit to you that we have missed God's purposes in this trial. He doesn't want us to be the same after all of this. If we will not hear God when he shouts through the megaphone, when will we ever hear him? I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to focus on verses 8 through 11. And the focus of these verses is Paul's own affliction as an apostle. It looks like that some of the Corinthians may have viewed Paul's suffering and weakness as a grounds for questioning his authority as an apostle. Paul, I think throughout this book, is going to correct this, and he's trying to say, on the contrary, that his sufferings are actually a sign of the authenticity of his apostleship. He never looks more like Jesus than when he is suffering. His aim in sharing about all of this, sharing about his affliction and his suffering, it's not, really, it's not so he can boast about this. His whole aim in sharing about this is to offer comfort and help to the Corinthians also who are suffering. Our focus, though, is going to be on verses 8 through 11, four verses, four brief observations about God's purpose in our affliction by seeing God's purpose in Paul's affliction. And so we're looking at four things this morning. We're going to see in verse 8, Paul's despair 
In verse 9, Paul's faith. In verse 10, Paul's hope. And then in verse 11, Paul's intercessors. So Paul's despair, Paul's faith, Paul's hope, and Paul's intercessors. So first of all, Paul's despair. Everybody look at verse 8. The Apostle Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now it's very important that we notice that little word, for, at the beginning of the sentence. Paul intends for these verses, verses 8 through 11, to be an explanation of what he has said in verses 3 through 7. So if you look at verse 6, he says this. You'll remember from our last message, he says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And so you have to remember that Paul understands that one of God's purposes in suffering is to help others in their suffering. If Paul is comforted by by the God of all comfort in his affliction, then he can share that comfort with other believers in their affliction. And so now he's saying, for we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that came to us in Asia. He's moving from the, the general to the particular. He's moving from God brings comfort, the general, to here's how he did it for me in Asia, the particular, in verse 8. So he's sharing this to equip his suffering readers. He's sharing it to equip us for the moment that we are facing right now. So what does he say about this affliction? Well, notice that when Paul says we, he may be thinking of himself along with his partners in ministry, like Timothy and Titus, whom he he mentions elsewhere in this book. But he may be just speaking of we in, in a way that the grammarians call the editorial we, in which case he's just referring to himself or really emphasizing himself. In any case, when Paul says, we don't want you to be unaware of the affliction which came to us in Asia, he's, he at least means, I don't want you to be aware of the affliction that came to me in Asia. So he's talking about himself here, his own suffering. Well, what did that suffering look like? He doesn't say it specifically in this text. We don't know specifically actually what happened to him in Asia. We can make some speculations to coordinate it with the book of Acts, but we're not exactly certain. It's likely that the Corinthians knew the situation that was happening to him in Asia, but but we don't know. Later, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul does give us this litany of the kinds of things that he endured as an apostle, the kinds of afflictions that he had to face. So you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you, but in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, in verses 23 to 27, Paul says this, He says, I have been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. 
I have been in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And on and on he goes in chapter 11. It's really clear that Paul suffered greatly on behalf of the gospel. We don't know exactly what happened in Asia, but we do know the kinds of things that happened to him that made him feel, like he says in chapter 11 and verse 23, he felt like he was often in danger of death. Paul says the same thing here in our text in chapter 1 and verse 8. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Whatever the circumstances were, they led Paul to believe that his life was coming to an end. But the question is, why is he telling the Corinthians about this affliction? We know why he's telling them this. Because it's the only way for them to know about his comfort. It's the only way for them to know how God sustained him through the suffering. God came to Paul. God stood by Paul. God rescued Paul and God comforted Paul. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know the same comfort in their suffering. Have you ever found yourself feeling a little desperate over this last month or so? Have you been concerned about your life and what you will wear and what you will eat and drink? You need to know that you're not the only one in the world. You're not the only Christian in the world who has felt desperate. God can transform your desperation into someone else's comfort. We don't know all the things that God is doing through this trial, but we know that God does purpose for this moment that that he's brought upon us. He has purposed to use your suffering to identify with other people who are suffering so that they can know your comfort in Christ. And some people in our congregation will have opportunities for ministry that the rest of us will never have because we've never known their suffering. that, that, That news may not be all that comforting right now when you're in the midst of it. Maybe a message like this would mean more to you later. But you need to know that God can turn your affliction around for your joy and for someone else's comfort. And that's why Paul is sharing about his despair in verse 8. But really, he's sharing about his despair because he wants to talk about his comfort. That's the point. So verse 8 is Paul's despair. But secondly, look at Paul's faith in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, verse 9 reveals a little bit more about what Paul was going through during his Asian afflictions. He says that he had the sentence of death within himself. Some people think that this means that Paul had a literal death sentence issued against him by some civil authority somewhere. I'm not so sure about that because Paul says that he has the, the sentence of death. Literally, it says, we have the sentence of death within ourselves. 
And so the sentence seems to be a kind of subjective sense that his life would end because of his affliction. Whether he got that sense from God or his circumstances, I don't think it's altogether clear here. What is clear is that he felt assured that he was going to die. But notice what he also says in verse 9. He says that we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that, in order that, those are words that express purpose. That means that Paul was brought face to face with death for a purpose. The question that we need to be asking is whose purpose? Was it for Paul's purpose? Was it for his persecutor's purpose that he was brought face to face with death? Was it for the devil's purpose that he was brought face to face with death? No. Obviously, it was for God's purpose that he was brought face to face with death. How do we know this? Because of what the purpose is. What the purpose is in the rest of the verse is not the devil's purpose. It says this, In order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. The purpose of affliction is to bring you to a point that you will stop relying on yourself, your own strength, your own resources, your own abilities. That's what the purpose of it is. In his commentary on this text, John Calvin puts it this way. This is really good. He says this. He says, The fleshly confidence with which we are puffed up is so obstinate that it cannot be overthrown in any other way than by our falling into utter despair. For as the flesh is proud, it does not willingly give way and never ceases to be insolent until it has been constrained, nor are we brought to true submission until we have been brought down by the mighty hand of God. The saints themselves have some remains of this disease adhering to them, and that for this reason they are often reduced to an extremity, that stripped of all self-confidence they may learn humility. Nay, more, that this malady is so deeply rooted in the minds of men that even the most advanced are not thoroughly purged from it until God sets death before their eyes. And hence we may infer how displeasing to God confidence in ourselves must be when for the purpose of correcting it, it is necessary that we should be condemned to death. When you feel healthy and when you are in a season of tranquility, it's easy to rely on yourself and to forget about God. It's just in our nature to be forgetful. But suffering changes all of that. Suffering is the condition in which God rattles your cage and shouts through his megaphone, no, you need to rely on me. I will take away every other thing that you're trusting in until you trust in me. And so the point is to remove your confidence from yourself to place it all on God. And we are barely aware of how little we trust in the Lord until he forces the issue with affliction. But this notice that this isn't just a generic trust in God that Paul is calling for in this text. 
This is a trust in God who raises the dead. When you are standing face to face with death, God gives you what you need more than anything in that moment. The promise that he will raise you from the dead if you're trusting in him. Our hope as Christians is not that we will never die, but that we will live on the other side of death. Paul is saying, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus' resurrection, because what God did for him, he's also going to do for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Even if you die, yet shall you live. Your physical body, which may be disintegrating, when it disintegrates, you will live just as Jesus lived. And you will live with him under the age in the new heavens and the new earth. You can face death because you're trusting in the God who raises the dead. Do you see this in verse 9? Do you have this kind of trust in God? The kind that allows you to face death. And have you considered that maybe this is the kind of faith that God is trying to produce in you through the trial of these days? One of my favorite stories in the Bible is one that I told the last time I preached on this text in this church several years ago. But it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. And you'll remember the story. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, he orders all of his administrators, including these three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he orders all of them to bow down to this golden image, and he threatens them, and he says, Whenever you hear the music start, everybody bow down. Whoever doesn't bow down, I'm going to throw them into this enormous, fiery furnace. So the music starts. Everybody bows down except for the three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so the king confronts them, and he gives them one more chance. And he tells them that when they hear the music, they must fall to their knees before the golden image. And then the king says this to them. He says, but if you will not worship you will immediately be cast into the midst of a, furning, a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He's about to find out. The best part of the story is the response from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the king because they say this, and this is what I want you to hear. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the rest of the story. The king throws them into the fire, and someone who looks like a son of the gods appears with them in the fire, and God saves them from the fire. But before any of that happened, the three boys did not know the end of the story. All they knew is that there was only one God worthy of their worship and trust, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they trusted God, even if it meant getting thrown into the fire. And so they said, but even if he does not, we'll never bow down. What God wants to create in us through this trial is some even if he does not faith. 
It's the kind of faith that knows God will take care of you one way or the other. Even though you don't know what that might mean. It might mean getting thrown into the fire. It may mean getting a chronic disease that keeps you in pain all the time. It may mean getting cancer. It may mean battling infertility. It may mean losing your job. It may mean contracting COVID-19. But God is looking to walk with you through that affliction to show himself strong to you and to comfort you and to give you confidence that he is the God who raises the dead. And you don't have anything to be afraid of. He wants you to be able to walk into any situation with courage and confidence and say, my God can deliver me from this trial. But even if he does not, I will follow him to the death. Are you trusting him in this way? The only way you will ever be serious about life or have courage to do what God is calling you to do in your life is by trusting in the God who raises the dead. You will never take risks without that kind of faith. God wants you to learn that he is trustworthy and he is willing to take you to the limit to secure your trust in him. And that's the point of this affliction, of any affliction in your life. He is trying to get you to, he's trying to kick out the supports from underneath you that aren't him so that you'll trust in him. So Paul shares his despair. He, we see Paul's faith, but the third thing is Paul's hope. Everybody look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Here Paul acknowledges that he has had many close calls with death, but that God has rescued him from death thus far. And he also affirms his belief that God will rescue him again. But he doesn't leave it there. He knows that every deliverance is not going to be like that earthquake that shook his bonds free when he was in the Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16. He's not going to have miraculous deliverances like that every single time. Paul knows that eventually the axe is going to fall and his neck is going to be under it. Paul's ultimate hope then is not for deliverance that he will receive after, you know, before the axe falls. His hope is in deliverance that he'll receive after the axe falls. When Paul uses the word hope, he's not using it in the way that we typically use it. When we use the word hope, we're typically thinking of wishful thinking. Um, like, you know, I, I hope the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl or something like that. That's, that's wishful thinking, okay? That, that's what that is. That's not a done deal. That's not what Paul means by hope. When, when Paul says hope, he's talking about a confident expectation that God will make good on his promises. And he's worshiping the God who raises the dead. That is among the promises that God will raise him. Paul's confident expectation is that God will yet save him. Paul can deliver his body over to affliction and even over to the executioner because it's God who raises the dead. You know, next year will mark the 65th anniversary of the deaths of missionaries uh, Jim Elliott and the four others who were with him. 
And America was shocked back in 1956 when the, the news came back that Jim Elliott and those four other missionaries had been martyred in Ecuador at the hands of a remote Indian tribe that they were trying to reach with the gospel. These five men had families, they had children, and yet they risked everything to reach a tribe that they knew were bloodthirsty and savage. And as these savages descended upon them with spears, Jim Elliott and the other missionaries had rifles. And they didn't use those rifles. But instead, they allowed themselves to be speared to death by the people they were trying to reach with the gospel. And they died right there on a riverbank in the jungles of Ecuador. Life magazine did a 10-page spread about their mission and their martyrdom for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the explanation of their sacrifice was probably best summed up in a line from Jim Elliott's journal that became so famous after he died. And you've probably heard it. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is even if he does not faith. But where does that kind of faith come from? It comes from the rock-solid confidence that on the other side of death is nothing but gain. That trying to hold on to this life that you cannot keep, it's not foolish to let that go if you know that you inherit that and then some on the other side. That's even if he does not faith. It's why you let yourself to be speared to death on a remote riverbank in Ecuador. It's why three boys allow themselves to be thrown into the fire. Do you believe God like that? God intends your trials to get you to believe in him like that. So Paul's despair, Paul's faith, Paul's hope. Finally, fourth, Paul's intercessors. Everybody look at verse 10. You also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted, granted us through the prayers of many. Now, I think the, the ESV's rendering here is really faithful. It faithfully captures how Paul relies on a means of grace just as much as anyone does. Um, Paul the Apostle regards the prayers of those crazy Corinthians as a means of God's sustaining grace to him, which is amazing when you, you think about it. But this is a really strange turn of phrase in the original Greek, and it's why none of the English versions really render it literally. If I were to give it a literal rendering, uh, the verse would sound a little bit awkward. It would sound a little bit like this. It would sound like this. You also helping us in prayer in order that from many faces, the gift to us might be thanked through many on behalf of us. Sounds strange, but what I want you to hear is that from many faces part. Paul wants them to pray so that his deliverance would come about from many faces. And I think what he means here is that he, he means so that the gift of his deliverance from, a, from affliction, it would come about from many faces that are lifted to God in prayer. In his commentary on this text, Mark Seifred says that that phrase, from many faces, recalls the language of the psalmists who speak of their faces not being ashamed. 
when their hope of deliverance is fulfilled. And I think that that's what he's talking about here. I think he's recalling the radiant faces of the psalmists when they were looking to God in hope and he fulfilled their hopes. You know, the strangest thing happened after my last sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last time I told you the story about how God used Susan to comfort me in a time of uncertainty about my health. And I told you how faithful God proved to be to me 15 years ago in comforting me during that particular trial. Well, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, God decided to test me again in this very same area right after that sermon. Um, when we received the news about Renna a few weeks ago, our family was gathered in my study for prayer to pray for her. And as we were praying, I put, I, I think I had my head bowed and I put my hands on the back of my head and I felt this lump on the back of my head, right at the base of my skull, but definitely a lump. And so when we were done with this, I looked it up on the internet bad idea, <laughs> because everything on the internet always leads to cancer, all roads lead to cancer. So I talked to my brother-in-law, who's a physician, talked to him about it, talked to Paul Tennant about it, and after talking to them, decided to have a doctor uh, here in Louisville look at it. And so I had a telemedicine appointment. Have any of you had a telemedicine appointment yet? And so I met with a doctor uh, on video, online, and he told me that it was likely a swollen lymph node. He gave me an antibiotic, and he said it should respond in a few days. Swelling should go down. Well, it didn't go down. It didn't respond at all to an antibiotic. And so I began thinking, if it isn't an irritated lymph node, then what else could be causing this lymph node to swell? And you can see where this thought process goes. It really starts to go in a dark place, a place I described to you in my last message a place I recognized that I didn't want to go again. And so in the midst of this, a couple, uh, probably Thursday a couple weeks ago, I called Jim on the phone to ask uh, him for prayer. And during that prayer, Jim prayed for me the words of Psalm 34, 5. And these are the words. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, verse 5 is really, really important. You know, I didn't even know about this connection to, to chapter 1 two weeks ago. I saw it this week, and I thought it was glorious. But verse 5 is really important. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The psalmist is comparing people who look to and pray to God during trials, and he's comparing them to people like Moses. When Moses looked at God up on Mount Sinai, he was radiant. The glory of God was reflected on his face, and he ministered among God's people with authority and with power. And if you look, and if you and I look to God like that in the midst of our trials, our faces will be radiant. We will never have to hang our head in shame 
because God failed to answer us. No, our faces will be radiant with the glory of God, just like Paul says in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. From many faces, praise shall go up to God. He won't leave us hanging. Our faces will be radiant. Indeed, chapter 3 in verse 18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed into that same image. And so in this conversation I'm having with Jim over the phone, he's praying this psalm for me. And it was like the Lord used Jim to put a sword in my hand and I went to war with that psalm sword in my hand. I began meditating on these words and praying these words, especially in the night watches, that time of the day when you become most tempted to despair. And so in those times when the darkness would enter in with questions like, what if it's cancer? I would answer, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So what if you aren't afraid? You still might die. Yes, but even if he does not, no matter what, my face will be radiant. He won't disappoint me, even on my deathbed. You're so pathetically weak. Yes, and that's not so bad. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. Psalm 34 and verse 2. And so I began to meditate on all the things that the Lord has done that are worth boasting about. Things in Scripture and things in my own life. And I began thinking about the time that I narrated to you um, from 15 years ago in my sermon last, uh, the last time. I began thinking about the time when a $25,000 check showed up out of nowhere to our church and enabled us to hire Matt D'Amico. And all of us elders had to face the fact that this was definitely the Lord. And then I began thinking about ways to speak this kind of praise out loud around the kids and around Susan. I began looking for opportunities to bless the Lord with my mouth, to let the humble hear it and be glad. And I fought and I contended, I contended and struggled. And guess what? I didn't go through what I went through 15 years ago. The darkness never had a place to settle in my heart. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Wasn't because anything that was in me. It was the Lord. But you know what dropped away during that time? Netflix. YouTube, social media, everything that people have been doing to while away the hours in quarantine, all that stuff had nothing for me. It was as if the Lord took my chin in his hand and said, you will look on me and you will marvel at me, you distracted son. Two really important lessons have come home to me through this, through this text and through just what the Lord's been doing in my own life over the last few weeks. Two, two really important lessons that I want to share with you. Here's the first one. The Lord uses the intercession of our brothers and sisters in Christ. He uses that intercession to sustain us in affliction. 
Think about this. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus who experienced despair over the prospect of dying. And as an apostle, he relied on the intercession of imperfect Corinthian believers to make it through. Can you believe that? An apostle did that? Why would we expect to make it through on anything less? The Lord used Jim's prayer in my life, so much so that I started sharing with just about everyone that I, I thought, I'll have more of that. I started sharing with everybody I could and asking them to, to, to pray for me. I asked my small group to pray. I asked my parents and my sister to pray. I asked some colleagues that I'm close to to pray. The Lord uses these things to bear us up. One thing I've picked up from Jim over the years is how eager he is to pray and how eager he is to pray scripture when he does pray for, for someone else. So to pray the Bible for one another, to do it right then when the need is expressed, we need as a congregation to reach out to each other. And the reaching needs to come from both directions. Sometimes we reach out to those in need. Sometimes we reach out because we are in need. We need both kinds of initiative to connect with each other. And, and this text is, is encouraging us to do this. A second thing that really struck me from, from all of this. Sometimes I can be so hard-headed. <laughs> there was already a plague going on, and that's not what drove me to the face of God. How hard-hearted and distracted must I be that not even the plague was getting my attention like it needed to? I had to feel a lump on my head to really get the message. It was almost as if, as if our text was true. <laughs> we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. By the way, about a week later after that doctor appointment that I told you about, I had a second doctor appointment who did a more thorough exam, and he told me that he thought the thing was, the thing on my head was, was benign. Praise the Lord. Happy for that. But I wouldn't trade that week of uncertainty for anything. What does God have to do to get your attention? There's a plague going on all around us. We all want mercy and relief. But how many of us are clamoring for circumstances to improve so that we can go right back to what we were doing before all of this started. To go right back to the same state of distractedness that we have had before the plague. To go back to the same fixation on trivialities that we had before COVID. How many of us are wasting this plague? How many of us are refusing to see and to savor God in this trial? when he kicks out all the props from under us? How many of us are relying on the fact that a vaccine is right around the corner and so maybe I don't really need to think, be thinking about death and ultimate things right now? What does God have to do to get our attention if a plague isn't enough? The essay that I referred to at the beginning from Peter Lightheart. Um, it ends with these words, and I want to read them to you. He says, To call the pandemic a judgment is not to slip into fatalism or hopelessness. Quite the opposite. 
Christians want God to assert himself as judge. Every time we sing the Psalms, we voice our hope that he will set things right and we rejoice at the prospect. For he comes to judge the earth. God judges to bring our sin into the light so we can repent. Failing that, he will judge again and yet again, perhaps going so far as to to demolish our world. Eventually, though, he begins to build something new from the rubble. Judgment is wrenching, truly a death, but God won't leave his world to perish. He is the God of resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would build something new from the rubble. Lay us as low as you need to. I say that with trembling. But make us the kind of people that we need to be. People who are sanctified, holy sinners. Weak in ourselves, but strong in you. Would you make us that kind of dependent, hopeful people? Even if the rest of the world doesn't get the message, Father, would we please get the message? Would we hear from you and rely on you, trust in you, and know that you have a purpose for us? in afflictions that we're delivered from in this life and in afflictions that we are not delivered from in this life, that we know that ultimately our hope is in a deliverance that comes after this age, the resurrection from the dead. Make that hope secure and make us holy now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.